So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1333, Emily Ledow, author, disability rights activist, and author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. We are socialized to either not think about disability at all or to understand it only as a bad thing. And when we look at it from that very negative perspective, we immediately place all of our stereotypes and our low expectations onto disabled people. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're exploring today life with a disability. What does it mean when it comes to your professional life, your financial life? Our guest is Emily Ladau. She's a passionate disability rights activist, writer, storyteller, and digital communications consultant. She has a new book called Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. It was named one of the best books of 2021 by NPR. Demystifying Disability is an approachable guide to being a thoughtful, informed ally to disabled people with actionable steps for what to say and do and what not to do and how you can help make the world a more inclusive place. Emily's career began when she was just 10 years old. She appeared on several episodes of Sesame Street talking about her life with a physical disability. She takes us back to that moment and shares how her narrative around her own disability has shifted since then. Here's Emily Ladau. Emily Ladau, welcome to So Money. Thanks for having me. I didn't know you listened to this show as well. So it's mutual adoration hour here on the So Money podcast because I love everything you're up for and doing and and it just makes me feel so great and special that you're also an audience member. I've been listening for a while because I need that outlet for someone to give me real talk about money. So I was super excited when I got the opportunity to do this with you. Well, thank you for joining. And your book uh, that came out last fall, I believe. And so um, uh, a little embarrassed that it took me some some months to get you on this podcast, but better late than than never. And in fact, I actually had a listener write in recently and beg for an episode about disability and money. And so really happy to have you on now. And so your book is called Demystifying Disability, what to know, what to say, and how to be an ally. I was reading your website where you have a little bit of your backstory, Emily, and you talk about how your career began at the age of 10, I believe coinciding with a Sesame Street appearance. Tell me about that moment. I believe you went on to talk about how you were born with Larson syndrome, which is a genetic physical disability. How did you tell your audience, largely kids at that point, your story and and how do you how did your tr- story change over the years? How do you tell your story now to the world, or is it similar? Oh, that's a great question to start with because I definitely think that people have 
continually evolving stories. And mine certainly is not the same now as it was when I was younger. But yes, at age 10, I had the opportunity to appear on multiple episodes of Sesame Street and to educate kids and their caretakers about what my life experience was like having a physical disability. And I think at the time, I probably took it for granted because I was 10 years old and I didn't really understand what was going on. But in hindsight, I realized that that was very much a springboard for me to realize the power of storytelling as this way that we can connect with one another and as a way to really bridge the gaps that I think so often happen in understanding about each other's life experiences. So when I was younger, I was not comfortable as a person with a disability. I identified as disabled when it was convenient for me and then otherwise wanted nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten older, I've realized it's very much a part of me. It's very much what makes me who I am. And I don't want to shy away from that. I very much want to talk about it as part of my overall experience. And I want people to not feel alienated, but to feel welcomed into a conversation about it. So it's been definitely an evolution of thought for me. And I would say I'm still evolving. It's not as though I'm magically resolved in this feeling. It's a day-to-day situation and I'm a human being who changes just like everybody else. Yes. Well, how great that you did go on Sesame Street to share your story with a young audience. I was doing a story last year about disability and how ableism contributes to the wealth gap. And one of the experts I spoke with, her name is Mia Ives Rubley. She's um, director for the Disability Justice Initiative at uh, Center for American Progress. And one of her, one of her kind of interesting insights was that, and she was born with a disability, was that even before a disabled person is ready to enter the workforce, before they're earning money, the expectations of who that person is capable of becoming with their disability, they're underestimated from a very early age. And so at home watching you on Sesame Street, I'm sure there was a child with a disability who maybe that day felt a little bit like I can, I can do things, you know, and I'm not alone. And that's such a big part of the empowerment journey. Would you say? A hundred percent. And you talked to a great person. Mia is an excellent activist. And I think it's really interesting for me as somebody who feels like I grew up without really having much of myself reflected back at me. I had to figure out my place in the world. And I'm very lucky that I grew up with a family that always supported me and said, you are capable. You can do what you set your mind to. But we automatically make this assumption that disabled people are not going to amount to anything. And also, when we say amount to anything, we're using a very capitalist understanding of that, of worth and productivity. So I need to acknowledge that. Um, For me, I got to be that person for people to show them, hey, your story is actually important. Hey, your story is worth telling. And if you want to do something, go for it. 
But the problem with that is that we still live in a society that puts up so many barriers Mm -hmm. and then expects disabled people to be the ones to jump through hoops to achieve in spite of those barriers. In your book, Demystifying Disability, Emily, one of the first steps, and you write to your readers who are those people like me who want to be allies for this community. And one of the most important steps, the first step you say, um, is to define it in such a way that doesn't feel like there are strict boundaries because you say the way we talk shapes how we think and the way we think shapes how we talk. Can you share a little bit about growing up what we think a disability means and it might even be literal because it's in the, you know, in the dictionary versus how you want us to expand our thinking. And you actually interviewed others with disability and how they see themselves and how they see disability. Um, would love for you to share some of that with us. We are socialized to either not think about disability at all or to understand it only as a bad thing. And when we look at it from that very negative perspective, we immediately place all of our stereotypes and our low expectations onto disabled people rather than recognizing that disability is just what I consider to be a natural part of the human experience. It's not something that should have any bearing on the worthiness of a human life. And yet that's how we've learned to think about it because we don't have conversations about it in mainstream classroom curricula. We're not talking about it as part of history. We're not talking about it as culture or as identity. We're simply talking about it from a very deficit focused standpoint. We're thinking of it as something that we want to shy away from because it's taboo, but Mm -hmm. Disability should not be taboo. We should just recognize it as another part of, to be cliche if you want, the diverse tapestry of our world. Mm -hmm. And so once we can start having open conversations about disability, about what it is, about the fact that, yes, it can be a medical diagnosis, sure, but it's also very much an identity, a history, and a culture, then I think we can start to unpack some of the other conversations that need to be had around employment, around education, around access for people with disabilities, and the expectations we hold for whether or not they can participate in these parts of our society. Yes, and just to let everybody know, this this statistic really always makes me stop in my tracks, but one in four adults today is living with some kind of disability that impacts major life activities. That's according to the CDC. And per more data data from the Bureau, Census Bureau, 25% of those individuals with a severe disability between ages 18 to 64 are living in poverty. That's more than twice the rate of those without a disability. So Emily, you brought up some of these other conversations we should be having with regards to employment and access. What are some changes that you would like to see or you see happening that we want to continue to further the advances of uh, people with disabilities so that they can go out there and make a good wage and and pursue whatever they want, like to be you essentially, right? To have <laughs> To follow their passion and make a career out of it. 
I think the the first thing that I want to acknowledge is I'm very lucky that I got to follow my passion and to turn activism into a career, knowing full well that I did come from a place of privilege as much as marginalization. I am a white woman. I have a physical disability, but I can still communicate verbally. And I had familial support and a relatively comfortable upbringing. So, you know, I had a lot of things behind me that did allow me uh, in spite of the barriers placed before me because of my disability to really succeed. That being said, as a disabled woman, I'm very passionate about getting people to understand just how far behind the disability community is when it comes to employment and Before we had this conversation, I double checked because every month the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out updated information comparing employment statistics for disabled people with non-disabled people. And in February 2022, the employment to population ratio was 33.1% for disabled people and 73.8% for non-disabled people. But Mm -hmm. you just mentioned that one in four people have a disability. So this math just doesn't add up. It's just not fair. And I think that we need to address the biases that we are holding towards disabled people, our low expectations, our assumptions about what we can and cannot do as people with disabilities and how we automatically shut so many people out of the workplace and not just because of those attitudes, but also because of the overall cultures that we foster and our inflexibility when it comes to creating workplaces that work for everybody. So there's a whole bunch of factors that we need to be thinking of when we're thinking about disability and access to employment. And the fact that it's not that disabled people are unemployable It's that we're socialized to think that and then we perpetuate those barriers. Yeah. One of the things that was really astounding to me when when I was doing my research, Emily, was this, gosh, I'm looking at it now. It's section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which gives businesses the right to pay someone with a disability far below the federal minimum wage. And so that is one thing. I'm like, can we just change that? Because it almost sets you up as a, as a person with a disability in order to collect, right? Like social security, you have to prove that you don't have more than X dollars in your bank account. And so that is sort of like a vicious cycle because then you, it's like, well, I need that. But then, you know, if, but I also want to make more money. It's like, how do you reconcile those two things? It's like a system that just sets you up for failure, financial failure. Absolutely. And I I realized I got so impassioned about giving my statistic that I didn't give the actual things that I want to see changed. But I think you brought up two very important ones. And in terms of Section 14C, I mean, that was written into the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. And we're still here today in 2022 (laughs) saying, hey, it's totally fine to pay disabled people some minimum wage. And the current administration did make a promise to help eliminate that and to phase that out. But unfortunately, with all of the other economic turmoil going on, that tends to be 
put to the back burner. And that's what keeps happening. It was in the initial build back better plan. And -hmm. now I'm left kind of wondering, well, what's going to happen to that? Is that still going to be a priority? But I would absolutely love to see a shift away from it being legal to pay disabled people so far below minimum wage simply because they're disabled. And initially, that was meant to be an inclusive strategy. It was meant to incentivize employers to give disabled people opportunities, but certainly not an equal opportunity. And then in terms of what you were saying about asset limits for disabled people, I mean, to be quite honest, that's something that I have experienced personally Mm -hmm. throughout my life. This constant dance that you have to do of, I want to be a wage earning citizen, but I also need specific supports to ensure that I get the health care that I need. Right. And so the system is essentially designed to keep you in poverty. And then people get angry when they say, well, you're so reliant on these systems. Well, you've designed these systems to keep us reliant on them. So it's, it's a catch 22. And I would love to see that change as well, because disabled people have just as much of a right to be wage earners and also receive the care that they need as anybody else does. Yes. What is your message to someone right now, Emily, who's listening and is not confident to reveal their disability? Sometimes a disability is like a mental disability, right? It's an emotional or mental. It's not physical. It's not like you're, you can see it with your eyes necessarily. And they are worried about someone finding out and then being stigmatized or facing backlash. There is a risk sometimes, right? To, in this world, which is an ableist world, to announce that you have a disability. Any advice for someone listening to overcome that or find a better way to work through that? It is such a valid concern. And for me, because I am a wheelchair user, when I show up somewhere, my disability announces itself. But that's not necessarily true because not every disability, as you said, is apparent. And so I completely understand the fear that people have around disclosing because in so many cases, employers have not exactly demonstrated that they're welcoming to people with obvious disabilities. So why would you want to put yourself on the line by opening up about a disability that people can't see? But the reality is, even though it's a deeply personal choice, and even though I want to be very clear that employers cannot force you to disclose information about your disability... Think of the ways that you might be denying yourself a more supportive environment by speaking up and saying, these are some of the accommodations that I need. This is what I need to do well in my environment. Here's how I can thrive and how you can support me. And I think that will open up a pathway for dialogue, for conversation, to allow you some space to figure out how to be the best possible employee you can be. And I recognize that that's really scary. And I know that there is always a chance that that can backfire. I want to be very realistic. But I am a firm believer that if we start these conversations, if we try to be open about sharing parts of our story, we can start to make inroads and bridge those gaps. Now, I don't want people coming to me and saying, I told my employer about my disability and now I don't feel accepted anymore because believe me, I've seen that happen before. I've been in that situation before. So my advice is to do what feels right to you, but don't be ashamed of who you are. Well said. Thank you for that advice. 
Your book has um, the subtitle, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. We've talked a little bit about what to know. We've talked a little bit about how to be an ally. We'd love to now zero in on the what to say part, language, and how to perhaps reach out, communicate, tell stories. And again, this is for the ally community. So would love any advice you have there that we can um, consider. That's a great question too, because I think people really mean well and want to do right by their community members, but just aren't sure where to start. And so I'm a big believer that allyship is about action and recognizing that there are small steps that you can take and you don't necessarily need to make these broad sweeping changes in order to be a good ally. And so sometimes it's as simple as not just assuming that somebody needs help, but saying, hey, can I lend a hand? How can I help you? How can I best support you? And in the context of employment specifically, sometimes it's saying, hey, what can I do to make this a more equitable and inclusive space for you? How can we make this more accessible to you? And pay equity for disabled people is a big thing and access in the workplace for disabled people is a very big thing. So as an ally, if you can speak up, if you can say, hey, we don't have any people with disabilities at this table having this conversation. Let's bring them into the conversation. Or, hey, we should really be paying this person with a disability to do this presentation for us, this training for us. Sometimes it's just about knowing when to speak up, when to be in solidarity, but it's also about knowing when to step back and when to say, okay, it's not my turn to center myself, but rather it's my turn to listen and it's my turn to learn and to amplify. So allyship is a negotiation and it's a little bit of a dance and a learning process, but I really believe that we're all capable of that. You know, you're hearing more and more about people who experience COVID suffering from long COVID. That's a disability, right? I mean, I feel 100%. like hundred percent our our world of who is disabled is broadening and broadening. And, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about kind of like the future and and things to think about as we step into you know, the new world, the post pandemic world, people are still hurting from, you know, even if they had COVID two years ago, they may still be suffering. And then other sorts of illnesses, which may not be long-term disabilities, but maybe short-term things like depression that came as a result of the loneliness and the sadness of the last two years. So what advice or what thoughts maybe do you just have any reflections as we head into this new era? You are so spot on in naming that COVID has led to a greater number of people with disabilities. And I like to remind people that the disability community is one of the only communities that anybody can join at any time. And that's really not a threat. It's not, but it is a reality that anyone can become disabled at any time. And COVID has created that situation for many people. And so I encourage people to look at disability as an experience that anyone can engage with. And especially in relation to employment, think about how we can create more accessible and flexible workplaces that work for more people. COVID showed us that we can switch to a more flexible workplace solution, for example, virtual or hybrid environments. And as devastating as COVID has been, I don't want us to lose sight of the things that we have learned from it about how we can create better workplaces that work for more minds and more bodies. 
I like to say that we are creating virtual curb cuts. I talk a lot about the curb cut theory, which is just essentially to say that people can use a curb cut, whether you are a pedestrian, whether you have a stroller or a suitcase or you're on a skateboard, but a curb doesn't work for everybody. Curb cuts do, but curbs don't. And so it's the same thing in the virtual world. We can create a world that works for everybody, or we can go back to the world that shuts some people out. And I don't want that to be what happens, especially now that we have more disabled people. Let's make this world more inclusive and not go back to the world that essentially rolled out the red carpet for COVID in the first place. And just because I'm a financial nerd, I want to mention that I do have disability insurance. It's something that I got almost as soon as I incorporated myself, my business. Through your employer, you may get some sort of disability benefit and through your state as well, short-term disability. But long-term disability, particularly if you are self-employed, it can be expensive. It can even be hard to get depending on the nature of your work. But it's something that I encourage everybody to look into. It would be essentially a replacement income or you know, as much as you can get to support you and your loved ones and those you support in an event where, you know what, you just can't do your job for any medically viable reason. And and to be honest, it's it's a much wider, just to what we were saying, like it's not just because like you got carpal tunnel. Um, it's because like maybe you are going through some long COVID or some depression and that I, I would hope would be qualifiable for uh, taking advantage of your insurance policy. I just wanted to add that because I thought it was very on brand for what we were talking about. Oh, and I'm glad you did because it also points to another huge huge issue that the disability community is constantly advocating for, which is known as home and community-based services. So essentially, it's to say if you become disabled, if you need any sort of of long-term services and supports, then why not have access to those supports at home and in your community rather than having to go to a nursing home, to an institution? Those expenses in nursing homes and institutions really, really add up. And you're being isolated from your community, from your family, from the people that you love and care about and the surroundings that are comfortable to you. So in addition to making sure that you are covered for those future events, also think about how you can be a strong supporter of disability advocates who are saying, hey, we want access to this care in our homes, in our communities, in environments that work for us, because that's going to create a better experience of disability and aging and illness for everybody. Well, Emily, it's been so nice to have some time with you. Thank you so much for joining. Everybody, please check out Emily Ledow's new book, Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Emily for joining us. Her book again is called Demystifying Disability. You can learn more about Emily at emilyladau.com. See you back here on Wednesday when our guest is Bobby Rebell, author of the new book, Launching Financial Grownups. Live your richest life by helping your almost adult kids become everyday money smart. That's on Wednesday. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. (laughs) 